Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Today we're talking with Tamara J. Madison. Tamara J. Madison is an internationally traveled author, poet, performer, and editor. Her critical and creative works have been published in various journals, magazines, and anthologies. She has performed and recorded her work for stage, television, and studio. Madison holds a BA from Purdue University and an MFA from New England College. She has also studied at the University of Salzburg in France. She is currently a professor of English and creative writing at Valencia College in Orlando, Florida. Her most recent release is This Road Not Freed, This Road Not Damascus, a collection of poetry published by Trio House Press. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to talk to you. I really, really love this book. I actually read it walking through my apartment, reading it aloud on multiple occasions. It's absolutely beautiful. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm curious to know what had you standing to your feet to read it. I haven't gotten that reaction before. (laughs) Um, I tend to read things aloud just because I like to feel and hear the words and Mm -hmm. everything about your book actually made me want to read it aloud, just from the rhythm to the cadence of it. It was absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. we're going to start a little bit from the beginning. So oftentimes a book can overshadow the journey to the page, um, but we all know that writers exist well before the final draft of that book is published. So I want to kind of touch on that a little bit. Um, What is your earliest writing memory? Wow. My earliest, no one's ever asked me that question before. My earliest writing memory is from elementary school. I remember I can even see, visualize like the folder. It was like a orange folder that I think I drew a leaf or something from nature in or something. And it was a a project that we had to put together and it was a collection of poetry. And I remember loving poetry and the sound of language. And I think my earliest memory would be probably more so the sound of language and storytelling even before writing. I was always intrigued by that. And my grandfather and great-grandfather, my uncle, all on my mother's side, they were all ministers. So the way they told a story, the way they sat at the kitchen table after dinner and told stories and things like that were always intriguing to me. And then I remember being sent to summer school as a very, very young child, I think around first or second grade, because I read and I wrote well for my age. And my parents wanted to send me upon the request of the principal to actually encourage other students. So I still remember those things and loving writing as a safe place to be. 
So do you find that even now, these years later, that your memory and those ideas are kind of still informing your work? Do you find elements of that in what you're writing today? Yes, absolutely. Biblical imagery is very, very much a part of my work. And I didn't even realize it on a conscious basis until a few years ago. And I've been writing for a long time. I didn't realize how much of an influence that had on me. The sound of words, loving the way that they sound, making sure that I love them when they come out of my mouth so that someone else will love the way they sound, the rhythm and the melody of words, being drawn to uh, jazz as a very young woman and having one of my mentors is actually an avant-garde musician and an internationally renowned musician and having that person as a mentor at a very young age in my early 20s as well. All of that is very much an influence on my work. The call and response in the church, because I was raised in the church, um, all of those things are very much an influence on my work. And do you also kind of express your creativity through other art forms besides writing? Are you playing an instrument? Do you paint? Do you think, do anything along those lines at all? No. And that's the reason why I write because I can't draw and paint. And so I feel like I have to paint my pictures through words, but I do love to sing and I do love to dance more so for my own personal pleasure, as opposed to really doing anything on stage these days. And I've always loved to sing and to dance. That's always been a part of me. And that was a part of me when I was really, really young, too. My mother used to get so embarrassed because as soon as the music would come on somewhere, I would just start to twist and shake and just all kinds of things. And she'd be so embarrassed. So I think the music in words, they have just been an inseparable relationship for me. Have you um, done any open mics? Have you participated in any plans? Um, as a way of bringing your words from the page out into an audience? Yes, that was where I started. As a teenager, everybody was either dancing or singing or roller skating on the stage back at that time. And I wanted to do something different. And so I would take poetry and use poetry as a dramatic dialogue. And I was doing spoken word around the age of 15 and 16 for local talent shows for the Black Expo pageant. That was what my talent was. And there there wasn't a term called spoken word that I knew of at that time. So the recitation of a poem for me came very, very naturally. And I was more drawn to poetry for the stage for many, many, many years before I was really more committed to poetry on the page. So I want to kind of move into this idea of muses and motivation. So I know that as writers, sometimes we have rituals that we may participate in before we write or after we write, or we may have certain songs or smells or things that we do that lead us to the page. So are there any particular muses or motivations that kind of spark your creative juices, things that kind of get you to writing? There is not one particular thing. Not not at all. When I'm not writing, I know that it's because I have not been nurturing my muse. 
because I don't believe in writer's block. I believe that if I'm not writing, it's because my muse is not well fed. And it can be anything. It can be great music. It can be dancing in the middle of the floor. It can be watching an independent film. It can be going to a museum. It can be watching a sunset. For me, there are a number of things that stimulate my muse and get me to writing. It can be just a line or a quirky conversation that I hear while standing in line at the grocery store. When I sit down for a session to write, a lot of the time I'll just open up a book and look at a short piece. And that usually gets me started. And the fact that I free write very, very often, very often, I think that's one of the reasons why it's not hard for me to get started in a writing session. It's just hard to find the time like most people. There are other things that I do for a job. There's family. There are all of these other responsibilities. But once I set that time aside, it's not hard for me to get started. I find it interesting that you say that because a lot of times as creatives, we have this idea that we have to always be outputting and we don't maybe put enough stock in inputting that there has to be something to feed that creativity, to feed the muse. So I'm glad that you said that because I think that that really is oftentimes something that's overlooked when it comes to the creative process. We're not filling our own cups, but we're kind of pouring everything out and kind of expecting it to magically um, kind of reappear. Yes. And I think the other thing is that we also think that it's something outside of us or beyond us that's going to stimulate us. And so I've just been really working on all of that coming from the inside out, that there's something already in me that I need to tap into, or the things that are outside will trigger something that's already in me. And that's one thing I actually talk to my students about. There's no such thing as writer's block. There just isn't. Very often we are censoring ourselves or we're waiting for everything to come perfectly and already edited and revised in our heads before we pick up the pen and start to do something. But that's just not the way that it works. It can be messy. It can be frustrating. It can be sad. And we have to work our way through it and just end up shaping it into whatever we want to call as art. But thinking that the art is just going to naturally flow, that's just not the way that it works. And so I find for me that if I'm not nurturing myself and taking that responsibility on myself creatively, other things just don't work well. My relationships with other people and with other projects and with other things and with the job and just a whole bunch of other things, they just don't work well. So it's clear to me that nurturing my creativity is as much a part of my diet as vitamin C is to my body and other things. So you mentioned um, your students. Um, do you find um, that there's a, a good way for you to balance kind of feeding their creative lives and their academic lives and then doing the same for yourself? Um, how do you kind of find a work-life balance, especially with a creative life um, that's um, kind of as varied as yours is? It's tough. <laughs> it's really tough. The blessing for me is that I have a creative writing class and I teach composition. 
And so one of the things that I try to do is make my composition class even as creative as possible. So the assignments that I give to the students are assignments that I like to read while teaching them certain skills. And they're things that feed me and that nurture me. And then I allow them, even in my composition class, I allow my students to be a bit creative in the approach to their writing. And because I'm always, I'm teaching that one class or two classes, comp one and comp two, that most people hate to take, right? So that really, really, really inspires me and motivates me to be as creative in my approach to teaching as possible, because I realized that my number one mission is to motivate my students to write because they don't live in a culture that honors and glorifies and really, really respects writing. So that's the biggest thing. So in order to do that, I have to keep myself inspired. So I try to give assignments that I love to read, that I love to teach, and that helps me. And then when I'm working with a creative writing class, a lot of the assignments and things that I share with them, believe it or not, I do them myself just to keep myself moving and keep myself working. For example, one of the things that we do once a week in all of my classes, I don't care whether it's comp or intro to poetry or what have you, is a free write. Just for about three to five minutes, a class once a week, we just do free writes and the prompts can be outrageous. The prompts might be in a different language that no one understands or the prompts might be to music. And so if nothing else, I try to do that with them as well. So for your own writing, I noticed that you have prior collections that have included a short story collection poetry and essay collection and an audio book. So how do you kind of settle on the genre a particular project may take? Um, is that something that the work guides it or do you go into it um, wanting to create a certain kind of, of work? Hmm. With all of the projects that you've mentioned so far, the work guided that. It kind of unfolded and revealed itself to me. With the project that I'm working on right now, I'm starting with a blueprint, which is kind of new for me. And so we'll see if that blueprint continues in my newest project or if the poetry again or the writing again will tell me what it really wants to do. We'll see what happens with that. So the most recent collection, um, which I'm very happy to um, tell our listeners that um, a few of the poems in that collection were nominated this year for a Pushcart Prize, which is amazing. Um, how did that collection itself come about? Oh boy, that is a 10 plus year journey that went through a number of different manuscript forms and even I think two or three titles as a matter of fact. So I grew up with that book. My womanhood grew with that book. And it really came about, I think, with a series of conversations that I've had with women, oh my God, probably, I mean, for years, for years, at least two decades 
the idea of what is a goddess? What is a powerful woman? Is she only one thing? Can she only be a Jezebel or only be Yemenya or only be a love goddess? Why can't she just be all of that? Like, why can't she be all of them? Why does she have to be fragmented? The idea of what does womanhood mean to us versus what womanhood meant to our mothers? What do we want our daughters to look like? So it's just been a series of conversations for a very, very, very long time. And I've been writing poems along that line from my relationships and partnerships to the birth of my children, to watching them grow, to seeing how women are placed in society or displaced in society, the boundaries that are put around us. How do we break those boundaries? Are we sure? All of that stuff, things that girlfriends have been talking about for years. So I think it started there. It started there and then it grew. It grew as I grew. And sometimes I think the poems would grow before me and I'd write something and I'd think to myself, you know what? No, I'm not ready for that right now. And I'd put it down, you know, and I'd walk away and then I'd come back to it. So it's been a very, very long relationship. So as I was reading the book, I wrote notes all over my copy of it and explanation points and the word love a lot. Um, So one of the things that I jotted down was this idea of generational voices and being able to go back and give voice Voices. Is that something that you concentrated wholly on, or is that something that came organically through the writing of the book itself? I lost you a little bit. You said generational voices. Would you repeat what you said after that? Yes. Um, the idea of generational voices in the work. That it seemed like at some point you were able to go back into time and then give a voice to a, a voiceless person. Now with this ability to say and speak out loudly that you're doing that. Was that something that was intentional? Or is it something that was organic that kind of came throughout the writing of the book? I think it started off organic and then it became intentional, very intentional. I remember when my mother was still living, I remember us having a family reunion on her side of the family. And my mother was a preacher's daughter and we were raised by you know, my grandfather, that women were not called to preach. That was not their place. In some areas of my community, I remember girls and women were not even supposed to walk across the pulpit area. You were not allowed to do that. And then some of that changed for some people, but in some communities that did not change. And I remember us having a family reunion and we wanted the three pillars of our family, which was my two uncles and my mother to each speak during a program during the family. And I remember my mother being very, very, very self-conscious and feeling like that was not her place because she was the woman and because she was the youngest and she just felt like, you know, that was up to her brothers. And I realized how much of an imprint that had on her. And she was an incredibly wise woman. All kinds of people of all ages were attracted to her because of her wisdom. And they'd come to the house and they'd sit and they'd talk and sometimes they'd cry and she'd have them laughing. And, you know, she was a confidant for a lot of people. But when it came to speaking in public, she felt like that wasn't her place. And I knew that that was partially because of the way she was raised. 
So I really feel like when I speak out or speak up or write and it comes alive on the page, it's for me, but it's for all of them. And it's also for my daughter so that she will speak up and speak out even more and so that the generations after me will be even more empowered. So from that moment and seeing my mother in that space, then it became very, very intentional. And I think that part of what I I was thinking as I was reading this book as well was there's this idea of the the women mentioned in the book being externally defined at some point, and now as we're moving into a modern era, being able to internally define themselves and taking back ownership um, of their their own voices and their own stories. So, do you in some ways feel like this is like a way to honor those the, the legacy of your your generation of women in your life? Is it a way to now leave a mark for them on the world that they weren't able to leave during their lifetime? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the one poem in there about the photograph of the woman, that was a true story. And interestingly enough, my sister found that photograph while I was in the process of editing the book. And I was like, oh, my God, that needs to be one of the poems in the book because we found Melinda. And there's so much myth around her and about her. I wanted her to have a voice, definitely. And in some cases, I think in terms of some of the writing that I want to do now, I even have a feeling that sometimes I want to work on a project where I want to rewrite their stories, rewrite the stories in a way that they might have imagined the stories coming alive for themselves if they had had the right and more freedoms to do certain things. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about um, as we move from the actual content of the the collection is to the structure of it. Because I think the structure of the individual poems and then the section of the collection as a whole um, creates this framework almost, I I wrote down the word mythology, like this, this bridge between mythology and religion. Was there a a conscious effort in how the poems were titled, how the sections were kind of segmented? Um, Can you speak to how you kind of put the collection as a whole together? Yes, it started off very organic. And I think in, in one of the last, what do I want to call it? One of the last forms uh, or f- one of the last frameworks for the book, I think there might have been seven sections or something like that, because I was thinking in terms of the way a church service flows. You have the devotion, you have the the praise and worship, you have the sermon, you have the doxology. I was thinking of all of those things. And then when working with my editor, she was like, OK, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is just way too many sections. You're making the reader think too hard. She said it needs to be in three sections. And I was like, oh, three. Yeah, three, three breasted woman, three, three sections. That makes sense. Why didn't I think of that? Right. So I think it's really helpful sometimes when we share our work with other people and they can see things that we can't see and they bring them to light. So the framework ended up being the three major sections, which felt much better because we I needed to start thinking about how the 
reader needed to follow the book. And that was something that was brought to my attention. When the writer is working on the book, the sections and the framework that we need to see sometimes is very, very different than what the reader needs to see. So then I began thinking more consciously about what the reader needed to see, what gaps and holes did I need to fill to help the reader understand more carefully. As far as the mythology was concerned, in one of the latter stages, uh, latter forms of the manuscript, I shared it with an old men- older mentor of mine. And she was making all of these comments in the manuscript. She was like, well, are you bragging here? Like, who is this talking? And why are you talking like this? And who is this speaking? You know, that type of thing, right? And by the time she got to the end of the book, she said, you know, maybe you're working with a persona here. And that stuck out for me as a red flag that I needed to pay attention to. And I was like, yeah, because I was aware that I had things in common with this voice, but sometimes the voice felt bigger than me and I felt like I was a part of it and that it wasn't all mine. So then I started thinking to myself, well, how do I shape that? What do I do with that? If it is indeed a persona, What does this persona look like? What does she sound like? How is her voice different than mine? And giving that more definition. What does she look like? How does she walk? How does she feel? What is the difference in the way that she manages her relationships with people and culture and society versus the way that I do? And then that became more and more intentional. And she became she began to take shape for me. And it began, it got to be very, very exciting because then it felt like a very intimate and a very, uh, just a, a wonderful and exciting relationship to build. And then after that, after we got the book to where, you know, it's about to go to publishing and this, that, and the other, and I started looking at sharing the poems out loud with people The idea of creating a mythology has become a bit of a platform for me. And I really want to encourage writers to do that. We have this thing, especially in some communities, of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting our pain and our tragedies. We do it all the time because we need to express it. We need to release it. But after a certain point, it's no longer release. It's almost as if it's reliving and reinforcing whatever that tragedy is. And so the question becomes, if we can do that with our writing, why can't we prophesy? Why can't we change the shape of things with our words? Why can't we write a new existence? Why can't we give people something new or something different to dream about because we're supposed to be creatives. And if we're supposed to be creatives, we can do more than just relive. I think the perfect example of that is what we've seen in the hip hop industry where certain writers have written about their death and, you know, they've sung about it and they produced it on a record or whatever. And then the next thing you know, they're gone. And it was almost as if it were written into existence. Why don't we write our life into existence? Why don't we write our uh, transcendence 
into existence? Why is it that Stan Lee and Marvel and DC are the only people that get to do mythology? Why don't we create that? And I think that that's a very exciting place to be. The people that are doing speculative fiction and this whole Afro movement of speculative fiction and things like that. I think that that's very, very exciting. And I think sometimes the masses just don't remember God, we just don't remember how to dream. And I think writers have the power to nurture the dream of a people, the dreams of a culture. And I think that we can do a much better job of that. And it's an exciting place to be. believe in some ways the reasoning behind writers going to be afraid of writing what they want to see and writing the world that they want to, to exist within. Um, it's because they feel that there isn't a place for them or do you feel that sometimes we're as creatives willing to sacrifice our actual passions for a place in a canon that's not necessarily built for us? Um, can you speak to maybe some of the hurdles that people may have overcome in order to be able to do this? Oh, I think the only thing I can say is that that can indeed be a very, very lonely place. And it can, you can easily feel isolated being in that place. You can also easily feel like, just like you said, that there's not a place for it in this world. But you have to remember that there might be a place for it in the world long after you are physically gone. And that's hard to travel through. And I think the thing that gets me through that is thinking of my ancestors. When I think of the people who made certain sacrifices who chose to learn how to write, learn how to read, even though it was against the law for them to do so, or they might be killed or harshly punished for doing so. The people who decided to resist and rebel, whatever circumstances, I know that somewhere inside of them, they knew that they might not live as a result of it, But like the line in the poem that I wrote, I think that they long saw us coming and they made those sacrifices because they dreamt of a world where generations later we would be reading and we would be writing and we would be teaching and we would be in positions that they could only dream about at that time. And I feel like if they could make those sacrifices then I can figure out a way to make some as well and understand that the gifts that we are giving may not just be for us and may not be about us at all. It may be for something that is on down the line. I think that's very true. I think that sometimes we may want to live the mythology in the present, not understanding that that in some ways is not feasible that the mythology is there because it's, a, it's an older story, it's an older legacy that we're maybe a little bit too concerned about the now, that there has to be a sacrifice, there has to be a foundation laid for future generations to build upon. So I think that's a perfect way to describe it. 
So as we're starting to wind down just a little bit, I have honestly thoroughly enjoyed everything you've had to say so far. So I'm very interested in whether or not you would have any recommendations for our listeners about writers that they pick up into or books or inspirations, music, anything that you think may help them write their own prophetic and transformative works and create their own mythology. Yes. And thank you for asking. And I literally just thought about this based on our conversation. I think one of the reasons why it might have been, and I can't think of any other word to say than easier, but that's not the best word, but you'll know what I mean. I think one of the reasons why it might have been easier for them to do so in an older time period is because people were more agricultural. The world was less industrial and it definitely wasn't web inspired, right? So people were used to planting seeds, watering them, praying for sunshine, um, rain, not too much wind, understanding that it was a risk that no matter how well they tended the seed, you know, crows might come and pick it out. Something might happen. Locusts might eat the plant, whatever. There are all of these things in nature that they had to consider. But it was a slower time where people had to watch things grow and they were more process oriented. Just because I plant these corn seeds, that doesn't mean that I'm going to get the same amount of corn that I got last year or that the crop is going to be just as luscious as it was before. And I'm going to have to find a way to make do. And I think because they were not a paper plate, throw away, push button society where everything was so easily disposable and instantaneous, that instant gratification thing, because they were not from that time period. I think the idea of making sacrifices and knowing that it was going to take time and energy for for them to grow was very different from them. And I think that's one of the things that makes it hard for us because we can push a button and things magically appear because if we have to wait for the computer to do something longer than 33 seconds, even, you know, we have a fit because it's too slow. I think that writers need to be very, very mindful of slowing down slowing down and not slowing down as in being unproductive or lazy, but slowing down in order to find the vortex to move through that will put them into that new world or that new place or that will give shape to that thing that they're dreaming of and can bring to fruition. And don't be afraid of doing that. Don't be afraid of doing that. To be quite honest with you, Stevie Wonder comes to mind. You know how everybody would fuss about Stevie Wonder. When is he going to come up with a new album? You know, and Stevie was living his life and it might be years and years and years before he comes out with a new album. But man, when he does, right? Secret life of plants or whatever he's creating, it's like, wow. And I think that we need to be more mindful of doing that and not let the illusion of a push button society and publish a book in 30 days 
take over things that can grow with much more intention and the beauty and the power of process. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That was absolutely beautiful. And I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners need to hear that. I think that you spoke directly to the idea that writing is now in some ways being commodified into a product and not a process. Um, So that is absolutely perfect. Um, I would like to thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know that the listeners are going to hear some things that resonate with them on their own personal lives and their projects. And I I greatly appreciate you taking out the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You made me think about a lot of things as well. So this was a treat. I don't get to do this often. So I'm Athena Dixon, and this has been the New Books and Poetry Podcast via the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.